0: this place this morning. I was thinking just now uh, as we were uh, getting ready to to close out this time of of singing and uh, preparing to dive into the scriptures that um, oftentimes just talking with people uh, there are these expressions as we go through you know various seasons and experiences in life uh, where we uh, look around and we tend to attribute things to uh, sources that may or may not be so, uh, meaning that, you know, oftentimes when we go through difficulties, uh, we may ascribe things to the devil that are actually uh, the consequences of our own flesh at work that we're, you know, having to then work through uh, as the outworkings of our own sin and, and other times vice versa, that as we've talked as a church before, uh, we're really up against three things. We're up against our own flesh, our own sinful nature, we're up against the devil and his demon army, and we're up against the world, uh, meaning the things that surround us, that are external to us, that put pressures on us uh, to turn from the Lord, our propensity to wander. It comes in, in three different forms in that regard. Uh, my grandmother is notorious for saying that the devil is on our family's back for everything, and I'm like, Nana, uh, sometimes it's me in my own sin. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's the circumstances of this world. Sometimes she's right, though, and uh I don't know what you bring into this place this morning, but if you feel like the devil has been on your back, uh, there's some really good news this morning as we dive into Luke's gospel account that I think is going to encourage you significantly. And so I don't wanna waste any time. Uh, I wanna go ahead and get into it. And so let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up to Luke chapter 11. That's where we are. We've been working our way through the book of Luke for quite some time now, the better part of almost a year. We took a little bit of a break over the summer uh, to dive into Uh, The seven deadly sins is seen in the book of Proverbs, but by and large, we've been in Luke for a while. Uh, If you're new to our church, you can actually go back and you can engage in some of those podcasts leading up to this point if you want to catch yourself up to speed. But suffice it to say that uh, we are uh, in the part of Luke's gospel account where Jesus has done his ministry in Galilee. He's now turned his face to Jerusalem where he will go and die in the place of sinners. That is the uh, fastest form of a catch you up to speed uh, sort of paraphrasing of where we've been. Um, but let me go ahead and pray for us. And, and I, think, I think you're gonna be really encouraged by what you see in the scriptures this morning. Heavenly Father, going back to last week, the fact that we can even refer to you as our Father is the result of a great miracle that's happened in Jesus Christ who would die in the place of sinners to purchase our adoption, that we could be called children of God, that we could come to you as our Father in heaven, seated on the throne of heaven, through Jesus, our great mediator and high priest, who intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray, when we forget to pray. A Wonder of wonders, Lord. I pray that these truths would, would not be lost on us this morning. I pray for encouragement for my brothers and sisters, for myself, Lord. Give me a feeling, sense of the things that I preached this morning. As we look at one of the other great miracles, the, the defeating of the devil of hell and his minion army, God, would you encourage us in that as we leave this place that we would be fortified, that you would put steel in the spines of our souls, Lord, that we would know that the victory has already been won, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, that hell is, is on defense, so to speak, and that the church is forward-marching. And that Jesus, you promised to build it. You promised to sustain it. And so I pray that you would help us to trust all the more uh, these things that have already been written in Scripture. They are true. They are promised. Help our hearts to believe in these promises now and and as we exit uh, this place and go about our week, Lord. uh, That we would be encouraged. uh, That we would be emboldened in Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, so... For most of you, I'm gonna guess that it comes as no surprise to hear me say that that the devil has been in hostile opposition to the kingdom of God for a long, long time. Dating all the way back to his heavenly rebellion against the Lord, one of the vast number of angels created good who turned against God in pride, all of whom were cast out of heaven, those among the fallen that we now call demons, Satan himself the prince of demons, scripture says, Opposed to God's glory, opposed to God's kingdom. On a relentless mission to steal and to kill and to destroy. It shows up in our story as human beings, as many of you know. Genesis 3, where the scriptures tell us, as I like to paraphrase it, that the devil came down to Eden, he was looking for a soul to steal. And man, he did some damage, right? If you've read the story, you know. He managed to bring the trustworthiness of God's word into question. Did God actually say? Tale as old as time. He's been at it from the very beginning. It's the same M.O. with each and every one of us. Eve, you can determine truth for yourself. You can live a life of, of self-determination. And as the story goes, Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, as, as did her husband, who failed to protect the garden, and the world came unraveled. As Sin entered the story of humanity, and with it, sin's curse of suffering, death, and alienation from God. And, and yet... You don't have to go very far in the scriptures to see that God doesn't leave us without hope as the, the very first redemptive promise is made before you ever even leave Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's what's known as the, the proto-evangelium. It's where we get the word evangelism, the first announcement of the gospel. God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises that, that there's a hero coming, that a descendant of Eve who will ultimately crush Satan's head. There's coming a descendant of Eve who will emerge victorious over you, you devil of hell. Yes, it will come at a price, the bruising of his heel, but he will disarm you and put you to open shame by triumphing over you. Fast forwarding to the book of Luke, Jesus of Nazareth is on the scene and Satan doesn't like it. All right, think about this for a second. Keep in mind that the devil is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at once. In fact, if you're under spiritual attack, it's probably one of his demon minions because for most of us, the devil doesn't have time. He's probably after other targets. He's not present everywhere at the same time. He does not share that attribute with God. He can only be in one place at any given time. And yet, think about this. Where does he choose to roam the earth as Jesus prepares to begin his public ministry? He sets up shot for 40 days in the Judean wilderness. The devil himself, not one of his commissioned demons because there was nothing more critical in all of the world at that moment in the mind of Satan himself than seeking to destroy Jesus of Nazareth. What does that tell you about who Jesus is? That alone is incredibly telling. Of course, we know that, that Jesus didn't give in to temptation unlike our first parents as the devil failed in his attempts to derail God's plan of redemption. Luke showing us that Jesus is not only the, the last Adam, having come to do what the first Adam failed to do, but he's also the new Israel, tested in the wilderness as God's son. The Lord's anointed having come to proclaim good news to the fo- uh, poor, going back to chapter four, liberty to the captives and those oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind in the year of the Lord's favor, the messianic fulfillment of the Isaiah scroll. One of the, the great evidences being Jesus' power and authority over demons. which You've seen numerous times now throughout Luke's gospel account, right? You, you have the man in the Capernaum synagogue, chapter 4, verse 33, who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Along with the many uh, demon-oppressed people who showed up at Peter's door, chapter 4, verse 41, And then there were those who were troubled with unclean spirits, chapter six, verse 18, who came to hear Jesus' sermon on the plain and be healed, as well as the, the many people oppressed by evil spirits, chapter seven, verse 21, whom Jesus healed in the presence of John the Baptist's messengers. You may recall those messengers having come to ask Jesus if he was truly the promised Messiah as John sat imprisoned in a desert fortress filled with doubt. And let's not forget Uh, Mary Magdalene and her seven demons, chapter 8, verse 2, the young boy tormented by an evil spirit who would cast him into fire and water. That was a crazy one. Chapter 9, verse 39, and the Gerasene demoniac, my favorite, living among the tombs, chapter 8, verse 27, all of whom Jesus healed with a word, a word of rebuke, commanding evil to silence itself and get out of the way. In the instance of the Gerasene demoniac, a demonic army staring into the eyes of Jesus and fearing for its life. A regiment of demons begging Jesus not to torment them. What what does that tell us about Jesus? About his power? About his authority? I guess he's just a pithy philosopher. A good teacher. No way. C.S. Lewis was right. No, there are only three options here. He's either a liar, he's a crazy man, or he's God in the flesh, right? It should come as no surprise to us that this morning's passage begins with these words. In light of everything that we've seen throughout Luke's gospel account up to this point, verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Jesus Encounters a man whose tongue is is bound by a demon so that the man can't speak. Going back to last week, think about this. Incapable of audibly expressing the words of the Lord's Prayer. Incapable of declaring the goodness of God, the grace of God. David Gooding, in his commentary, says, This is self-evidently the work of the enemy if it is God's desire and design and man's chief glory that he should be the priest of creation and articulate creation's response to the creator, that he should talk with God as a son with a father, if those things are true, he says, then it is obvious why it should be of prime strategic importance to the enemy to cripple man's ability to speak with God, to lock up man's spirit within himself and as far as God is concerned to turn this earth into a silent planet. Satan loves silence when silence is in contrast with the praise of God's glorious grace. Satan loves silence when silence is in contrast, going back to last week, to the persistent prayers of the children of God. Satan loves silence when silence is in contrast to uh, words of encouragement and, and admonishment among the saints within the church. Don't take for granted that thing we just did that we call worship through song. Your mouth has not been muted or bound by the enemy. You can praise the Lord. You see Jesus here with his authority over evil exercised yet again and casting out a demonic spirit, having bound the tongue of a man uh, for who knows how long who couldn't speak. I mean, imagine this man once bound by mutinous, now praising Jesus with his newfound voice, Psalm 40, verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. I think it's, if I'm remembering rightly, in C.S. Lewis's reflections on the Psalms, where, and we talked about this a few times along the way, where Lewis says that our joy is not fully completed until it's expressed. Kind of like what you see when you uh, watch a, a college football game happening or when you go to a concert to watch your favorite band Imagine the idea of having to keep your mouth shut during that experience. How awful would that be? The joy is completed when it's expressed, when it comes out of us. This man was bound. He couldn't come out of him. It's a gift when we come together. We can sing as the church. It becomes so commonplace for us that I think we forget what a gift it is. What Jesus does here is astounding. And yet, notice that Luke records this little miracle so matter-of-factly, devoting very little attention to detail, right? Simply telling us that Jesus cast out the demon, the man spoke, the people marveled. And there's a reason for that, as Luke is far more concerned in this particular instance with what happens after the miracle. Verse 15, he tells us, But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Notice that no one seems to doubt Jesus's ability to cast out demons. Even among his most insolent opponents, that's a given. Yes, he's doing that. Probably going to keep doing that. However, the the source of Jesus's power and his motivation for performing such miracles, that's a different story. Here Jesus is met with both slander and skepticism. Slander as it pertains to the source of his power, which some are attributing to Beelzebul, the prince of demons, a.k.a. Satan, the devil. And it's not just the, the average Joes in the crowd who are saying such things. Matthew's account, if you go and read that parallel account, tells us it was the Pharisees making this accusation. Mark's account adding that there were also scribes from Jerusalem among the slanderers. Here we have the the scribes and the Pharisees attributing the work of God to the work of Satan and denying that Jesus was the son of God. They had to come up with some other explanation for the power by which he was performing these miracles. And so their conclusion... By the power of the devil. That's the slander. And and then there's the skepticism from others in the crowd who keep seeking from Jesus a sign from heaven. Meaning that they don't see the exorcism itself, which has just taken place, as a sign of the kingdom. They want something more. This morning we're going to look at Jesus' response to the slander. Part one. The accusations of the scribes and Pharisees regarding the source of his power. Next Sunday... We'll come back around to be continued. We'll look at Jesus' response to the skepticism, the demand for a sign. If you pick up in verse 17, Luke tells us, But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls, And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. This is is not a rocket science moment. This is one of those moments in the gospel accounts where Jesus brings simple common sense into the conversation. Declaring that it would make no sense whatsoever to cast out demons by way of demonic power. How, how silly would it be for Satan to drive out his own underlings as that would amount to evil destroying itself. Right? This is a perfect example, Romans 1, of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, the irrationality of sin and unbelief. Satan's aim is not to destroy his own kingdom, but rather to, to exercise his reign as the ruler of this world through his demon army in the relentless effort to destroy God's kingdom. You can see with Jesus' words here how division and disunity in the church would be a devil's playground. A household divided falls, Jesus says. He goes on, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. There were others in the, in the Jewish community who had the power to 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 cast out demons like Jesus, some of whom were close to the scribes and Pharisees that that Jesus is addressing here. And so Jesus asks where those other religious leaders' power comes from. It's such a question uh, exposing the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees who who wouldn't dare attribute the, the miracles of those other Jewish exorcists to the devil. Only Jesus gets that accusation. Only Jesus is worthy of such slanderous criticism in the eyes of the religious leaders, no matter how irrational, no matter how inconsistent the logic of their argumentation might be. Jesus goes on in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The finger of God. It's an expression that that shows up in the story of the Exodus. If you go back to Exodus chapter 8, amidst the series of plagues that the Lord brought upon Egypt. uh, Exodus chapter 8 verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, here it is. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The ultimate The purpose of the plagues was the, the glorification of God's name through the demonstration of his power in both redemption and judgment. God demonstrates his power in an irreplicable way, and his enemies cannot help but declare, This is the finger of God. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus makes an astonishing statement here, declaring that it's by the same finger of God that he casts out demons that heaven's king has come to inaugurate his kingdom and with that to destroy the evil one in his kingdom. Going back to the garden, we've talked about this numerous times along the way, that this idea of kingdom, it's been around since the dawn of creation. Man's purpose wasn't simply to stay away from forbidden fruit. Our first parents were created to exercise dominion over all the earth, to fill the earth and subdue it. That's kingly language. That man was created to rule over creation, to cultivate creation for the glory of, of heaven's king, the greater king of creation. The trouble to use that kingdom language is that God's first king and queen of creation rebelled against the greater king. Choosing a life of, of judicial autonomy, of self-determination. And out of that rebellion, the kingdom of this world was then established, a world come unravel. God's response, again, Genesis 3.15, it was to, to liberate the to free and new people for himself from the kingdom of this world. Coming back to the story of the Exodus, you have God establishing himself as the liberating king of his people, Israel, bringing them under the reign of his kingship, showing them how to live under that reign in the giving of the Torah. As the story goes, and most of you know this, Israel, like Adam, failed to live in glad submission to the king. And thus you have these, these themes throughout the Old Testament of judgment and exile, like our first parents in the garden. And so when you, when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, you, you, you see this hope of, of God someday establishing his reign over this broken humanity. It's this hope that, that God will someday return to bring salvation establishing a rescued people for himself who will live under his reign. That's the backdrop of the Old Testament as Jesus comes onto the scene, declaring, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The promised offspring of Eve is here. The serpent-crushing high king of heaven is here. Now you see why the devil wouldn't be anywhere else but in the Judean wilderness for 40 days trying to throw Jesus off of his mission. Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Notice that Jesus doesn't minimize the power of Satan, describing him as a strong man, fully armed, guarding his possessions, his possessions being those under his power, those under the domain of darkness, to use that Colossians 1.13 language. As Charles Wesley writes, and we often sing, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Right, that's the condition of fallen man apart from Christ. In the possession of the strong man, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, bound like the mute man's tongue. That's the bad news. The Good news. Man, I love this language. The good news is that there's one stronger than the strong man. And his name is Jesus. Having come to bind the strong man, to crush the strong man under his feet, to plunder the strong man's palace, Jesus says, to set the captives free. It's why John would write, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus' deliverance of the mute man from the bondage of Satan, it was proof that not only is Jesus not on Satan's side, but that he exercises a power that's supremely greater than Satan's power. And with that, the authority to declare, verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here again, Jesus leaves zero space for neutrality. It's not enough to stand distance from those who would attribute the work of God to the devil. Right? There were surely those in the crowd who who weren't gonna go that far but yet didn't want to firmly commit to Jesus, to trusting Jesus, to following Jesus, like the three men back in chapter nine who expressed a willingness to to follow him and yet without truly counting and, and embracing the cost. There is no third option. Luke's gone to painstaking lengths to make that clear to us over and over and over again. That Whoever is not with Jesus is against Jesus. And whoever doesn't participate in his kingdom work of gathering And his name is in opposition to his kingdom work. Scattering. Think about how that would have come across to the scribes and Pharisees. All of their religious efforts. Not in the name of Jesus. The work of scattering. No matter how long the list of of religious accolades we bring to the table. It's a sobering word for, for those of us here in the American South. Jesus goes on. Verse 24 when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. It's a strange set of verses, isn't it? Jesus sprinkles in this story, and it seems like it should be part of some instruction manual on how to better understand demonic activity and oppression. How do you get out of seven demons coming back? You know, like, what is this? Jesus here describing an evil spirit that, that goes out and wanders in the desert, leaving a person, finding no rest, finding no home, only then to return to the person from which it came, its former place of residence, the house now swept and put in order. Matthew's account adding that the house is empty. Matthew chapter 12, verse 44. Which leads the demon to go and find seven other demons, all of which make that person their permanent home, which is what the word dwell means in the original Greek, to settle in permanently. It's a weird story. It's one that, that few scholars interpret dogmatically, as if they're certain beyond a shadow of a doubt of their interpretation. I'll give you what I... I don't know, what I believe to be my the best interpretation, though I'm incredibly charitably open to other possibilities if you land somewhere different on this one. K- keep in mind as I'm trying to unpack this that Jesus has just mentioned the gift of the Holy Spirit, chapter 11 verse 13, whom the Father generously gives to those who ask him. Right? That that's just happened. In addition, keep in mind that Jesus is about to pronounce woes to the scribes and Pharisees, chapter 11, verse 39. That's coming just a few verses from now. Those who cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside are full of greed and wickedness. Those are the bookends. The Father generously gives the spirit to those who ask him, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, who clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is filled with evil. What I believe Jesus is describing here is a life of, Moral renovation without the presence of the Holy Spirit. In the words of one commentator, the man swept his soul, but he never asked God to cleanse it. Again, Matthew describes that soul as empty. The demon left, but the spirit never entered. Nothing good within, having replaced the evil that once was. Again, it's a sobering warning to the scribes and Pharisees. The Christ-denying soul-sweepers, you might say, who not only are without the Spirit, but have just attributed the Spirit's work to the devil of hell. I mean, make no mistake about it, part of what I think Jesus is saying here is, yes, I came to destroy the works of the devil, and more than that, to destroy the devil himself. It's why we have verses like Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where the author of Hebrews tells us, "'Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, "'he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, "'of flesh and blood, he became human, "'that through his death,' the author of Hebrews says, "'he might destroy the one who has the power of death, "'that is the devil, Beelzebul, "'and deliver all those who through fear of death "'were subject to lifelong slavery.'" that Jesus would go on to receive the bruising of his heel, Genesis 3.15, as he died a bloody death by crucifixion. And yet it was through his very death, we know this, that Jesus would deliver the death blow to the serpent's head. The victory belongs to the church. The devil's bleeding out. Gates of hell, they won't prevail against us. No matter how bleak it might look, Another song that we oftentimes sing, I think we're gonna sing it just minutes from now, Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That we have the, the, the word that shall fell the enemy on our side. The authoritative word of heaven's king, Jesus Christ. Think about that. The, the, the one who spoke a word of rebuke over and over and over again throughout Luke's gospel account. Every time you see him casting out demons, that it's that same one who will someday return. And with a word, Satan will be done for forever. That's good news. Your tongue shouldn't be bound when you hear things like that, right? That deserves an amen if anything does. But, but let me go further with what I think Jesus is saying here in these last few verses. Yes, we, we have the authority of Jesus Christ on our side. The one who has come to crush the serpent's head. The serpent is bleeding out. Make no mistake about it. But that's not all that Jesus came to do. More than that, We have the indwelling Holy Spirit whom Jesus secured for us that in him we might be God's temple, Paul says. The Spirit of God taking up permanent residency within us. To tie it back to the the Lord's prayer and, and more specifically the fatherhood of God, Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father the Holy Spirit, God's seal. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That if you're in Christ, Yes, you've been rescued from the domain of darkness, from the possession of the strong man, Satan. Praise God for that. But more than that, you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, who set up permanent residency within you if you're in Christ. So that in Christ, in the words of John Calvin, you're fortified on every side. There is no opening left for Satan. Don't interpret that as easy believism, by the way. I prayed a prayer, coast to my death, I'm good to go. Jesus will say in just a couple of verses, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. But don't underestimate what Jesus has accomplished for you. In the crushing of the devil, in the securing of the Holy Spirit, these are miracles. Praise God. There's one stronger than the strong man. Jesus asks, are you with me? Are you with the strong man or are you with the stronger man? We get an opportunity in just a few moments to praise the stronger man with our unbound tongues. And yes, Luke tells us of this, this miracle of this mute man healed in in, in passing with little detail. But I just encourage you as, as you sing to consider the fact that, um, that you've been given a tongue to sing with. That, the, that your joy might be made complete in expressing that joy, in praising Jesus. That we have that opportunity. We have that freedom because we've been free from the domain of darkness. We love Jesus. We're happy to sing to him. We want to sing to him. We've been redeemed by him. Don't let that get lost on you this morning or any Sunday for that matter. As you come in with your unbound tongue over and over again and leave this place and go and scatter into the community as a light in a dark place in the midst of the kingdom of this world, shining, proclaiming his glory, proclaiming his grace with your unbound tongue.